Welcome, all you who are always here. <laughs> uh, you know the announcements on the screen? Yeah. All of y'all already do small groups. Uh, is there anything I missed? <laughs> and done. Let's all, let's all give them together. Let's all give them together. We probably could. Anybody want to say Alex's address out loud? I will. I'll be, I'll be impressed. You can give her away of stuff. Uh, yeah. That's what's more awkward doing this Yeah, pray for Annie, please. She's, she's not feeling well. And, and, and Rose is going to I mean, she was a job for On July 28th, there is uh, that group that was here last week, Jen Send, the college students, they're going to be presenting a prospectus of ministry in the Bridge Quarter. Um, so they'll, they'll be talking to other ministers and things like that and, and coming up with uh, what is supposed to be like creative ideas to minister in our neighborhood. So I'm going to go. I'm interested in their thoughts. And so if you want to go, you're more than welcome to join us. It's at the seminary. It's at 9 a.m. on July 28th. trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Same question. 
please God? Because those are both the same question. The answer, the answer is the same. Um, our New Testament passage is a very familiar one. It's um, when Jesus is approached by someone who, want, who asks him that question, what must I do to have eternal life? And God tells him, Jesus tells him, you know, you, you've got it. You understand what's required. And he still tries to negotiate further, um, as we do, when God gives us the simple answer of this is what you must do. We say, yeah, but. <laughs> um, in our Old Testament passages from Deuteronomy, and it might be slightly less familiar, um, and it's part of a larger passage, parts of which would be familiar to you, I think, but it's one of those times when, when God has brought his people out of slavery and he's making them into this new people and preparing them for this new life that he's going to give them. And he's given them these laws and commands so that they can live well, so they can live well together, so that they can live well in communion with him. And over and over again, he tells them, you have options. You can continue going your own way, and that is going to go very badly for you. Or you can do these things that I've laid out for you and you'll have life. And so in this passage, he's telling them again about one of those times when, as we saw when we were going through Isaiah, when they chose the wrong path and they ended up being scattered and they ended up being exiled and they ended up living under a curse. And God tells them in this passage, when those times come, if you remember that I told you all of this from the beginning, and you turn back, I will gather you back in, and I will restore your life. And then he tells them something which to me connects these two stories very beautifully. He tells them, this thing that I'm giving you, it's not some hidden wisdom. You don't have to go find someone to go up into heavens to ask after for it. This isn't something I'm, I'm not trying to trip you up. I'm not trying to get you on a technicality. You don't need priests and theologians to make sure you do everything perfectly or I'm going to smite you. These, this is what I'm telling you. I'm putting it into your heart. I'm putting it into your mind. I'm putting it into your soul. Follow me. And you can return. If you mess up, you can return. And there will always be mercy. So for me, when I was reading these stories this week, I was reminded of how many times I and other people, when seeing or hearing the call of God or the commands of God, of seeing a hurt that needs to be addressed, of seeing a broken relationship in our own lives, how quickly we are to say that that's not our job, right? That's not for us. We're not called to be perfect. We're not called to be saints. We're not all pastors. We're not all priests that those are special things that special people do, that have a special calling from God. But we all have a calling from God. When God says, be holy as I am holy, and be perfect as I am perfect, he's talking to all of us, to you and to me. When he says, love with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength, and love one another as I have loved you, he is talking to all of us. Jack Lul says, and it's one of my favorite 
bar is high. <laughs> it is perfection. We are called to be like Christ. There is no point at which we will ever be able to rest and say, oh, we're, we're as good as God wants us to be now. We're, we don't have to keep growing. We don't have to keep learning. We don't have to keep repenting. This is all God wants from us. God wants more from us because God wants more for us. And God is always there to forgive and always there to gather back in and always there to heal. But we must never stop looking and listening and returning and responding to the call of God. So whoever can see the first passage and would like to read it, please read for Deuteronomy for us. Deuteronomy 30, 1 through 4, 9 through 14. When all these things have happened to you, the blessings and the curses that I've set before you, if you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and return to the Lord your God, and you and your children obey him with all your heart and with all your soul, just as I am commanding you today, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you, gathering you again from all the peoples among whom the Lord your God has scattered you. Even if you are exiled to the ends of the world, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will bring you back. And the Lord your God will make you abundantly prosperous in all your undertakings, in the fruit of your body, in the fruit of your livestock, and in the fruit of your soil. For the Lord will again take delight in prospering you, just as he delighted in prospering your ancestors, when you obey the Lord your God by observing his commandments and decrees that are written in this book of the law. Because you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Surely this commandment that I am commanding you today is not too hard for you, nor is it too far away. It's not in heaven that you should say, Who will go up to heaven for us and get it for us so that we may hear it and observe it? Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, Who will cross to the other side of the sea for us and get it for us that we may hear it and observe it? No, the word is very near to you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. For you to observe. Thank you. 
God of frustration and compassion. You call us to return from the broken places where our sin has stranded us. You call us together, the severed pieces of one body, that you long to bind up and heal. You call us to follow your word and your example, that we may have and be light and life.
passage. Uh, the next song we're singing is probably pretty familiar to you. There's a fountain. Uh, what may not be familiar to you is the text on which it's based, because uh, it's deep Old Testament. You know, like the kind that, I mean, we don't talk about this, but the, the, the books that you may not have read for a while, or like ever, it's in Zechariah. You should read it. It's a great book. Zechariah chapter 13 um, says this, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him who they have pierced, they shall mourn for him. It's one who mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him. It's one weeps over a firstborn. On that day, there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. Amen. So the idea of this passage is not widespread hurt, widespread pain, but the fountain filled with blood is meant to represent widespread forgiveness of sin and pain.
Lord, I thank you for meeting us here. God, I thank you that if we, if we have you here, God, we have enough. That you are sufficient. God, and I thank you that it is not I, that it's you through me and through each of us, Lord, that you work. God, I praise you because I, I only ever seem to mess things up. God, but you are so good and so glorious. Everything you do is right, and it's at the right time, and you always have wisdom, and you know the right thing to do, God, whereas I am thrown here and there like a wave on indecision. God, in our passage, in our single verse that I'm preaching on today, Lord, I pray that you would, you would show us your truth and your word. God, that we might know your wisdom. We hear it calling to us in the streets today. Pray all this in Jesus' name. So we know you guys. Amen. Woo! Yeah, recovery from COVID is, is real. I think I'm actually going to preach using a mic, even with, with 15 or so people in the room. Funny, I made it through practice just fine. But, Good morning. Please go with me to Proverbs in chapter 11 as we continue our series through this book of wisdom. Wisdom, which is usually not something you can look up online. There's a few websites. Wisdom is not information, though. It's not always what's trending. It's ancient. It's everlasting. And God gives it generously, though, to all of those who seek it. I loved the passages this morning. Talking about the generosity of the Lord with the best things in our lives. I want to pick up this morning where I left off last week. So if you weren't here last week, maybe try to catch the sermon on our website or on Spotify. I promise I will put it up soon. Uh, it will it'll help make more sense of this one. Last week I talked about this, and, and this was one of my points last week. It was the last one I kind of closed on. I didn't have a whole lot of time to flush it out, so I wanted to bring it back up again today. So this is my only point for today. In wisdom, righteous desires are always fulfilled. In wisdom, righteous desires are always fulfilled. And wickedness is never fulfilled. Sin, wickedness, throughout Proverbs, it's, it's viewed as something which constantly devours and yet is never satisfied. That point last week caused a lot of questions in small group. I, I think because this isn't something that's widely taught or believed in our culture. And, and health, wealth, gospel has kind of taken this idea and spun it into something unhealthy. And so most people keep a wide berth. But it's a major theme through the Proverbs that wisdom, righteousness, grants you the blessing of God. And, and so we, we need to go through that and, and hear that out and make sure we know what we're not saying and what we are saying in that. Uh, throughout this series, I've been using the Proverbs as a, a doc to launch out into the wisdom of the ages, into the wisdom of the church universal, and learn from many of our brothers and sisters of old. I wanted to return to this idea of righteous desires always being fulfilled and, and kind of go deep on it, do a deep dive into this idea because our passage returns to it as well. So, in fact, the whole sermon this morning is going to be about a single proverb in chapter 11. Though there's a lot of wisdom 
calling out to us in the chapter, but Proverbs 11.23, moves. I'm going to put it up on the screen, says this, The desire of the righteous ends only in good, and the expectation of the wicked in wrath. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Pray with me again briefly. Father God, that's how I always do. I just, I pray that regardless of what I say, Lord, that you would show us your truth and your word today. God, because we know your truth will set us free. We desperately long to be free. Pray this in Jesus' name. So we know you hear us. Amen. I love my wife for many reasons. I'm sad she's not here to hear me say that. Um, hopefully she hears me say it enough. One of the many reasons I love her is her candor with me, her honesty. Uh, whenever you're a pastor, you can start walking on tiptoes around you. Apologizing for curse words, always trying to say the right, the religious thing, you know, never admitting doubt. I honestly, I hate it. It's my least favorite part of being a pastor, and when people ask me what I do, that's my least favorite part of their response to me saying that I'm a pastor. And my wife, because she loves me, doesn't do any of that. <laughs> uh, we were reading this passage together a few weeks ago, and when we got to this verse and a few others like it, she goes, well, that's dumb. <laughs> And I was like, Annie, it's the Bible. You can't say that. <laughs> she was like, I don't care. It's dumb. I don't believe that. Uh, I know a lot of evil people with everything they want and a lot of righteous people dealing with a whole lot of hurt and pain. And as usual, she's right about that last part, not about the Bible being dumb. Uh, my life experience makes quoting the Psalms, I don't know about you, it, it, my life experience makes quoting the Psalms on this matter a little easier than quoting the Proverbs, especially Psalms like Psalm 93. How long, O Lord? How long will the wicked prosper? That's easier for me to understand and preach and say than what's a theme here through Proverbs, that the desire of the righteous ends only in good and the expectation of the wicked in wrath. If you're focused on the world, it looks like wicked people are able to take whatever they want. And no good deed goes unpunished. If you're focused on the world. So don't focus on the world. Fix your eyes on God and see the world in wisdom. Because in wisdom, the desire of the righteous ends only in good. God works all things to the good. And I'm not talking about the next life. I'm talking about this life, too. In this life, the desire of the righteous ends in good. The idea behind these verses is best explained by what, all through the classical and Middle Ages, was widely known and taught as the Wheel of Fortune, but which has fallen out of common teaching. Uh, thanks, Lewis. Just to be clear, uh, I'm not talking about this Wheel of Fortune. <laughs> That's a game show, which, personally, I find delightful. Uh, but I'm talking about this Wheel of Fortune. Just, okay, so let's run it one more time. Not talking about a game show, and talking about the centuries-old concept of the Wheel of Fortune. Like I said, in our day and time, we no longer really believe in fortune. I know we use the words all the time, hey, good luck, right? But we no longer really believe in the concept. Much less do we associate it with Christianity. Usually we associate it with gambling at, at this point. As a society, we've shifted to become very deterministic and magical in our thinking which are really just two sides of the same coin. 
both determinism and what the Bible calls magic believe that your life is controlled. The only difference between determinism and magic is who is controlling. Who, who is it controlling your life? Who is it controlling the things happening around you? Is it you or is it God? Determinism believes everything which happens to you is because of the will of God. Or if you don't believe in God, if you don't like talking about God, they'll talk about the will of the universe or, or the inevitability of the universe. Magic, on the other hand, believes everything happening to you is the result of your own actions in the world. It believes that you are able to control the spiritual and the physical realities around you. Both determinism and what the Bible calls magic are now very prevalent in the church just as they are prevalent in the culture. They look different in the church versus the culture, but it's the same idea of our lives being controlled. In the church, magic looks like, and I've already mentioned this, but magic looks like the prosperity gospel. We talked a lot on Wednesday about the prosperity gospel, this idea that if you give your money or if you give your time to God, if you do righteous things, God will bless you in exchange uh, with money or with health well, good fortune. Do you see in that how that belief puts you in a position of control over God himself, over what happens to you in life? Would you rather be rich than poor? Well, just send money into the ministry. Would you rather be healthy than sick? Okay, believe more, pray more, and eventually you'll be in control of your illness. Pray with enough faith and you can command the Holy Spirit. Just to be clear, that is not Christianity. That's what the Bible calls magic. In Christianity, God is completely out of control. He's like a lion loose, James the writes. He's not tame, but he is good. In the culture, magic looks like humanism and karma. Again, this is in the, in the culture, outside of the church. You are able to be the change you want to see in the world. And if you are kind and moral, then good things will happen to you in return. That will come back to you, karma. I deserve everything I have, people will tell you. I've worked hard for it, and so on. And determinism, so that's that was the magic in our culture where it shows up. Uh, and determinism in our culture looks like believing the universe is guiding us. Or believing that whatever happens is the inevitable result of everything that came before, explainable by careful study. Some of y'all are maybe a little confused right now. It's like, wait, don't we, don't we believe in some determinism? Determinism is closer to biblical truth than magic because God is, in reality, in control of the universe. God is in control of the universe. Now, I want to make sure, again, that you're hearing me for what I'm actually saying this morning. I want to be sure you hear me saying God is in sovereign control over our lives. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Please don't hear me preaching against sovereignty or against predestination. That's not what I'm saying this morning. What I am saying is that we need to stop believing that everything happens for a reason. I'm going to say it again, because again, this is not widely taught, not widely believed. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make my case. We need to stop believing that everything happens for a reason. We need to disbelieve determinism if we are to read our passage rightly this morning. We need to replace the idea of determinism with the idea 
that for centuries was the widespread teaching of the church, which is that idea of fortune. I've heard the phrase, everything happens for a reason, so much from so many wonderful, faithful Christian people that honestly, when I was younger, I thought that it was in the Bible. It's not. I certainly grew up thinking that it was at least a Christian idea, but I have become increasingly convinced in my ministry and in my theological study that it's not. And if you've said that phrase to me, you've probably heard me respond in a very particular way. You've probably heard me say this. Sometimes the reason things happen is sin and brokenness in the world. Dear friends, whom I love, you know I would not speak it unless I believe this to be a truth that is able to nourish you this morning. Everything that happens for a reason is a repeated phrase misshaping us spiritually. And in wisdom, we need to get rid of that idea and recover the idea of fortune. Humanity has sinned and has fallen. That is not what God wanted. The world we live in is no longer a world in which everything that happens around us is according to the will of God. Sin is not the will of God. If it were, it would not be sin. And I understand arguments about the hidden and the revealed will of God. I'm just not convinced by them. One day, the world will be according to the will of God, but that day is not today. That is not right now. God doesn't want people to die. He doesn't want people to keep on sinning and wandering lost without him. There's a reason if you've ever been mourning the loss of a loved one and someone's told you, hey, everything happens for a reason, that it probably felt like a slap. Because in that moment when death is that close, you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that this is not what God wants. And it's not right. And there is no reason for this hurt and pain that you're experiencing beyond the fall and the not rightness of the world. God doesn't want people to die so that we can learn some sort of cosmic lesson. And God didn't want sin or death in the world in the first place. Very clearly in Scripture, we, humanity, we strayed from the will of God in our sin and subjected the world to futility. Keep on to that word from Genesis 3, futility. God is the one who is overthrowing death who is our only hope of redemption and restoration back to a world in which his will is done on earth as it is in heaven. What the Bible teaches is not that God somehow wanted sin and death in the world, but rather he is strong enough, sovereign enough, to take even this world that we have broken, even these lives we have broken, the mistakes that we've made, and not destroy them and start over again, but to restore and remake us new. You have to realize how deeply this world is not what God intended in order to appreciate both his grace and his power to save humanity rather than destroy it. In all things, even those things which have wandered far from his will, God works toward the good. Just like you have to realize how deeply your life is not what God intended life eternally to be in order to understand both his grace and his power in saving you from death in the outer dark. Instead of believing everything happens for a reason, we need to rediscover the idea of fortune. I think if we started believing in fortune again, 
the poor among us would have more dignity and the wealthy more humility, we would be able to minister with more compassion to the grieving. We, as a church, we would be able utterly to reject the prosperity and the poverty gospels. We would be more generous with each other as well. Believing in fortune, friends, is a wiser course, a better path, more life-giving, and would be healthier for our church than believing that everything happens for a reason. So what is this old idea of fortune, and why is she depicted as holding a wheel? Fortune in the old sense, in brief, is the belief that many things happen in our fallen world which are entirely out of control, chaotic. And fortune, in the old sense, can be good or it can be bad. Thus the wheel and the people on it. Fortunes are always turning, the church used to teach. Sometimes you'd be up and sometimes you'd be down. Sometimes you would be the person at the top of the wheel, the king. Uh, raised to the height of society, the height of good fortune. And sometimes you would be the person ground underneath the wheel, into the ground. Wretched. And they used to teach that all of this was entirely out of your control. Thinking over it this week, the idea of fortune is very well expressed in the serenity prayer hanging on our stairwell and prayed daily all over the world to help urge people who are addicted toward health and wholeness in God, it, it's this. God, grant us serenity to accept the things we cannot change, courage to change the things we can, and wisdom to know the difference. Wisdom. The things we cannot change. That idea is fortune in the old sense. The futility to which we have subjected the earth and our sin, according to Genesis. We have to realize our lives and our world are out of control. There's a lot that you can't change about your life. Where you grew up, who raised you, whether they were kind or cruel, whether you grew up rich or poor, the color of your skin, and what that means where you live. Oftentimes, whether you get sick or stay healthy, there's some things you can do toward health, obviously, but sometimes you just get sick and it's not anyone's fault. It's fortunate. And fortune has no bearing on your character, how talented you, you are or how hard you work. And this is what Annie meant when she called this proverb dumb, I think. This is my charitable interpretation of that uh, comment. Sometimes good people get sick. And sometimes terrible people are rich and famous and powerful. Sometimes the best people live poor, quiet lives in obscurity. Your character determines not your fortune, but your character determines how you respond to fortune, both good and bad. Another reason why fortune is depicted as a wheel is because as a wheel turns, the outside of the wheel moves a whole lot. But the closer you are to the center of that wheel, the less moved you are by the change, by the turning of fortune. The church used to teach that godliness is found at the center of the wheel, unmoved, content with whatever your fortune happens to be, unmoved by the ups and downs of the things you can't control, serene in the center of God's will for your life. I spent my week thinking about my own fortunes and what in my life is out of my control. 
and I was shocked at how many things are in this category. There are a lot of things in my life that I have no control over. I can't change that the entirety of my time spent as a pastor thus far has been in the midst of a pandemic. That has been incredibly stressful and an overwhelming start to ministry. For about a year, y'all know this, y'all were here for this, for about a year I was making choices that would either risk literally closing the church entirely for good or risking people's lives. What kind of choice is that? I can't change lockdown orders or the ideological polarization tearing apart relationships and stripping us of civility as a society right now. I also don't believe that any of those things are God's will. His plans encompass those things. He is able to take even those broken things and move them towards good, but they are not of him. He is still on the throne. He is still sovereign and he will work it to good somehow, but we are living in the already not yet of his work. I cannot change also terrifyingly what happened to my children in their histories before they arrived in our family or where the judge will decide to place them tomorrow and i don't believe in any way that their abuse was the will of god no lesson is worth that and no subsequent good to quote dostoevsky no subsequent good can balance that that was the evil of men. I believe God is able to turn even that evil to good, but there's going to be a lot of striking from the book of life in that scenario. He's able to turn it to good, but in spite of, not because of the abuse. That was out of control. And now it is a huge part of my daily life, and one that I cannot do a single thing about. It is entirely out of my control even though I would give my life to go back and somehow change that fact. And for those of you who have been really sick, you did not get sick because of God's plan. His sovereignty did not do that. The fall did that. Sin did that. And it's terrible. God's plan is healing your sickness. God and his sovereignty is healing the sick and raising the dead. Your loved ones didn't die because of God's plan. It was the fall. But God in his sovereignty is turning back even death. These things that you were mourning, they didn't happen for a reason. They happened because of our fallen world. Come, Lord Jesus, with your reasons and with your plans to redeem us. The time at which belief in fortune was most widespread in our culture uh, the time in which this idea was, was most talked about in our church and from where this painting comes, it was during the time of the Black Death, a time which bears some striking similarities to our own, not just in a, a pandemic illness, but very many other things, the printing press being the major one. Christians throughout Europe, as more than a third of the population of the continent was dying, healthy one day, and then dead the next. Naturally, they began asking the question, why is all of this happening? Where is God in this? And many pastors of that day wisely responded by talking about fortune. They would have told you this, all this death, this is not the will of God. Not some retribution for the sins of the world, not some demon set loose 
on the world because it's the end of days. The world has been subjected to futility, they talk. And now it's out of control. God still rules and reigns sovereignly. But much of what goes on in the world is because of sin and the fall and God's choice not to destroy humanity, but rather to play the long game of redeeming us. They saw the Black Death as fortune at its worst, the bottom of the wheel. In wisdom, they stopped asking why all of this was happening. They started asking what God's will, what is God's work in the midst of this brokenness? Whatever our fortunes, how will we respond? The Christians of that day astounded the nations by rushing into towns and cities to care for the sick and dying. Everyone, everyone else was fleeing to the countryside, desperately trying to escape the Black Death, and the Christians at the time were opening up hospitals for the poor in the city centers. Every night leading hospital-wide prayers and worship services, joyful song in the midst of the worst sickness and suffering the world has ever known. The Christians of that day became known as those who had compassion on a sick and a dying world, who were willing to brave danger and sickness themselves to practice the love of Christ in word and deed. And Christianity flourished in this time because they knew God's will was to heal the sick and to uplift the downtrodden, to save the lost, and to care for the hurting. No matter what was going on, Church, listen, my, my hope in preaching this is that we would be a people like the Apostle James who are able to rejoice even in suffering. That we would have the wisdom to see that those fortunes are not necessarily because of us, but they are sin in the fall. And that we, in our character, in our Christ-likeness, in whatever he sanctified us to be, can respond in praise to him in that. Like the Apostle Paul, would that we would be content in every circumstance. When bad things happen, that we wouldn't blame God. I'm telling you all of this because part of wisdom is understanding what you can't control and what you can. Knowing that your life will be filled with the glorious, beautiful gifts of God and with trials both. The difference between a life of satisfaction and a life of wretchedness has less to do with what comes your way and more to do with how close you are to the center of that wheel, to the center of God's will and heart. Because the closer you get to the center of God's will and heart, the more your desire is for him, and he is able to be your joy in good times and bad, in the chaos of this world and in the midst of all the good gifts he gives. God himself is the fullness and unfailing source of pleasure and corruption. If your desire is for God in this life, you will always be satisfied. And if your desire is for anything else in life, you may be able to get it, but it will never satisfy you. And in that way, the desire of the righteous ends only in good, and the expectation of the wicked in wrath. Pray with me. Father God, I ask again, Lord, please give us your wisdom this morning. You say that you give to all without finding fault, God. So I pray you would find any fault in each of us this morning. 
Lord, that you would allow us to see in your wisdom. God, that our fortunes are not because you have punished us, God. They are not from our own effort. Lord, but you give us so many good gifts. God, that we are awake this morning. Lord, to see the sunrise, to see it set, to have your rain fall on our gardens. Lord, to see the trees around us grow. God, family, all of your good gifts. Lord, that in wisdom we can love and cherish and appreciate. Lord, your gift of salvation, your gift of your Holy Spirit. Lord, may we take your good gifts and be satisfied in them. Lord, and may we leave these things that can never satisfy. God, this endless pursuit of wealth, this endless pursuit of power, this endless pursuit of pleasure, Lord, may we leave them to those who would pursue them. God, may we pray for those people who are pursuing them, Lord, that they might come to see in wisdom those things that will actually satisfy them. Lord, may we, may we not be upset in times that we have less of them. God, because we're so satisfied in you. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. So we know you, grace. Amen. Feel free to respond in whatever way seems good to pray at your seats or kneel. You have the kneelers at the front. Meg's in the back. If you want to pray with somebody, sorry, Meg, just volunteer here for that. Um, or you can stand and sing.
So mom, if you're listening, I believe all of that. 